Psalm 110 this evening. Uh, Psalm 110, you're going to perhaps take notice, or uh, if not, important to be aware of, is actually the most referenced as well as the most oft-quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Uh, This psalm is alluded to more often in the Gospels, in the Epistles, uh, as well as quoted most often in the entire New Testament. And it speaks in great detail regarding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ prophetically. Uh, It portrays Jesus, we'll see, as king. It portrays Jesus as priest, and it also portrays Jesus as, we might say, judge or a conquering military warrior who then executes judgment from a throne and brings about severe judgment upon his enemies. And what's interesting to take note of, no person, remember, under the Mosaic law was permitted to be both king and priest simultaneously. You could be a king, and you could have that as a calling, and you could serve as a king, or you could also be a priest, and you could serve in that function and role of ministry, but no one was permitted under Mosaic law to be both simultaneously. You could not be both a king and a priest at the same time. In fact, there were times when certain individuals tried to make that crossover, and they were severely dealt with by God. Yet in Jesus, we see that he uniquely is all of those things and more combined in one person. Uh, In being unique in that way, we see that even beginning to be portrayed here in this psalm. We're going to see in this psalm together in verses 1 through 3, we see Jesus portrayed as a mighty and a strong king ruling then in verses, uh, verse 4, we see the eternal priesthood of Jesus, not only that he functions as a priest, but that it's an eternal priesthood, a priesthood that never ceases, it never comes to an end, which again, as we'll talk about, was very, very different than a typical Old Testament priest from the tribe of Levi, who typically priests were always rotating, high priests would rotate because they would be prevented by death from continuing their ministry. Uh, And Jesus, therefore, becomes very different in that sense as the great high priest. And then in verses 5 and 6 and 7, I venture to say as well, we see Jesus portrayed as a judge or a conquering king. And we'll see like a mighty warrior bringing then about severe judgment and executing wrath on his enemies and those who are doing what's wicked. So the psalm opens, again, telling us, again, it is a psalm of David, which is very interesting because the Bible tells us from a New Testament perspective that David also had a prophetic ministry. And this psalm is incredibly prophetic in the things it portrays about our Lord Jesus, both in his first coming and really, to some degree, all the way out then down and through his second coming as well as he returns back to the earth as a judge, having come the first time as a humble Savior. Verse 1 opens by telling us, notice the Lord said to my Lord, and notice the distinction there, capital L-O-R-D, that's that Hebrew tetragrammaton, the Y-H-V-H, we believe it's pronounced Jehovah, or some believe Yahweh, we can't be 100% certain, it references the, the covenant God of Israel, it's the name of God, and really often what we might depict more as reference to the Father among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so Yahweh, the covenant God, the 
the name Yahweh or Jehovah said to my Lord, and different Hebrew word, capital L, but small, notice O-R-D, that's the Hebrew term Adonai, which is a term that speaks of a master or a ruler. And so here we have Yahweh God said to my Adonai, to my master, to my ruler, sit at my right hand. Remember, the right hand was always the place of special honor and favor. We even say to this day, my, my right-hand man. Well, we understand what we mean by that. Well, in that day with a throne, at the right hand of the king was person who had all, most of pretty much the same access to the, to the throne's power, to the throne's authority, and he was functioning many times directly on behalf of the king. So at the right hand of the king, that was the seat of favor. There at the throne, functioning in partnership. So Yahweh God says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand here at the place of rulership. Notice, till I make your enemies my footstool. Now, this becomes a very clear indication here that notice you have Yahweh God or the Father speaking to Adonai, referring to the same but yet a different personage, no doubt communicating something to Adonai, the Lord, the Son. So you have the God the Father speaking to God the Son, our Lord Jesus, the ruler Adonai, who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the Bible tells us, saying to him, sit at my right hand till, notice, until a time comes to pass, a set timetable, where I make your enemies your footstool, which is a picture of someone putting their foot up on an enemy. The idea is upon their neck as they would in conquest. The idea is bringing your enemies into complete subjection to you. Now, we know the Bible is very clear that Jesus has already, through his works, triumphed and defeated all of his enemies. He's defeated the devil and the powers of darkness, and he's defeated all things, but yet there is still coming a time where all of those things will, in a, uh, in a most full sense, be brought into subjugation to the authority and to the rulership of Jesus. Jesus has conquered all things, but yet there is still a degree of latitude given right now whereby there is rebellion happening against the throne, against King Jesus in a sense. And so he says, sit here at my right hand as Adonai, as ruler and master, which you rightfully are, until the time, he says, that I one day make and bring to pass all of your enemies subject as a conquering king to you at your footstool and give to you the full, in a sense, uh, privileges and all the benefits of your victory that you've wrought on behalf of our throne. Now, as verse 1 speaks of these things, this is a very clear declaration of Jesus' deity. And what this is indicating is that the Father, speaking to his Son, says, look, you belong here at my right hand as a part of my throne, and you as a conquering king will one day inherit everything from the throne when I bring your enemies underneath your rulership. And it's a reference to the deity of Christ or the fact that Jesus himself just like God is Father, that there is also God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus was just as much in all of his deity and attributes God as the Father was, as the Father is giving to him this right and making this proclamation, saying this to him. Now, we know particularly that that's what this is a reference to because I mentioned about being quoted frequently in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus there, toward the end of the chapter, 
quotes this very statement and these verses here, Psalm 110, verse 1, and he quotes this to validate his deity to the people that he's speaking to. And he basically says in regards to this, how can David be saying to one of his own descendants that his, that his own descendant could be his Lord? And, and the, the question in the mind of the people was that that's not possible because no father would ever submit to a son. And so what Jesus began to do was use this verse to indicate something had to be going on in order for David to basically be speaking about someone in a personage who could be both his Lord and his descendant at the exact same time. The book of Revelation talks about how Jesus is both, that David is both the, the, the root and the offspring. In other words, the origin at the same time and also the offspring. And the reason why is because Jesus, being the eternal son of God, always existent, has been Adonai ruler and Lord forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. But yet Jesus also came as a man as he took a second nature, a human nature upon himself, and he came through the lineage, Second Samuel 7, of who? David. And so he became a descendant of David. And, and Jesus referenced these verses saying that is why David could both refer to him as his Lord and his son at the exact same time. And he reaches back and he quotes from this very verse here in Psalm 110 to build that case of the deity of Jesus being both the son of David by natural descendancy, but at the same time also being David's Adonai, off of being David's Lord and having authority and rulership over him at the exact same time, being both his son naturally and his Lord, we might say, spiritually and eternally. And so Jesus uses this verse as a way of building and, and, and proving his deity. The same verse is quoted again in Acts chapter 2. We're there in the midst of the preaching of, of Peter. This very verse is quoted as a way there again to emphasize that Jesus is the eternal God and the ruler who sits upon the throne of God. So we, we see this verse referenced in many ways, speaking of this idea of Jesus being a mighty king and the eternal king at God's throne. He says in verse two there, the Lord shall then send the rod of your strength Again, the idea of ruling with a rod, the Bible speaks of the rod of iron, the idea is with all power, your strength out of Zion or out of Jerusalem. And he then says to him, rule in the midst of your enemies. The idea is take rulership, take control. There were enemies opposed to the throne, but he says, rule over them in your greater power and authority. And then he says, regarding again, the, the, the kingship of Jesus sitting upon a throne, he says, verse three of the Lord Jesus, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. The idea there is the womb, you know, pictures the womb which gives birth. And so the idea here is, you know, the morning gives birth to something new. And, and he's speaking here of in the day of Jesus's power, when Jesus is ruling, when he's exercising his authority and he is being allowed to rule properly in any of our lives, when we surrender the throne of our heart over to Jesus, and even as he's reigning upon a throne in heaven, when we let Jesus be enthroned in our life and rule over us, what that produces in our life when Jesus is ruling in the day of his power and he's properly enthroned, he says, verse three, your people shall become volunteers. And what's a volunteer? A volunteer is basically someone who is a willing servant. 
right? They're not an employee. It's not forced labor. They're not a slave. They're not being subjected to do something that they don't want to. A volunteer is a willing servant, someone who willingly chooses to give of their time, their efforts, their energy to serve a cause or to serve a group or to serve people or to serve a person for that matter, to serve under someone. Hey, I'm willing to be a volunteer. And this is the idea that when Jesus is properly ruling in our hearts, he doesn't force us to serve him in obligation. He doesn't require us to do something. He doesn't want to treat us like employees. He wants to work through our lives as willing servants, that we would willingly serve him out of love and gratitude and that like volunteers, we would volunteer ourselves. Lord, here am I, use me. I'm, I'm a willing servant. I wanna be useful for your purposes. And he says, when this happens, there's something very beautiful about that, a beauty like holiness. And again, the word holiness always speaks of just being set apart. And there's something very beautiful, the Bible says, when someone says, hey, I'm willing to just set my, part of life, set my life apart for the Lord and say, Lord, my life is wholly yours, in holiness, here I am, I present myself to you. I just wanna be your volunteer, rule over me. Use my life, Lord, I'm willing, however you wanna take my life and work through it. Verse four, he then goes on to say here, the Lord has sworn, so notice now, this is again, Yahweh God, Jehovah, the Father, has now sworn, he's made a declaration, and what was his declaration in regards to the son, his son, which notice, and he will not relent. In other words, this is a declaration that is once for all made that is not to be altered and it cannot be altered. It's a declaration from a throne. The father has sworn and will not change his mind. He's not gonna relent. This is fixed forever. He says of his son, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, now he speaks here in verse four of Jesus at the same time, verses one to three, that he is a mighty king who sits upon a throne, who is ruling from a throne, exercising the uh, you know, prerogatives and the power and doing the, the work of a king, ruling over people. That same king simultaneously notice the father has also declared by his declaration is at the same exact time a priest. He says here that the Father has sworn, Jehovah has sworn, you are also a priest forever. And what was a priest? A priest was a mediator, a spiritual mediator. The priest represented uh, God to the people. And so the priest was a representative of God to the people. And at the same time, the priest also represented people before God. So a priest functioned in a role of mediation as a mediator between God and men. And of course, it becomes a beautiful picture of exactly ultimately what Jesus becomes. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, there's one God, one mediator between God and man. And it says between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus has this priestly role where Jesus represents God to humanity, right? Jesus said in John's gospel, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. They said, show us the Father. In other words, they were just saying, show us God. It would really help us if we could just see God. Remember, Jesus was almost kind of shocked by that. He says, have I been with you so long? And you say, show me. Don't you realize if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Again, Jesus was God in human flesh. He became man to represent God 
to people so that humanity could clearly see with flesh and bones and blood and living out the life, this is what God is like. This is what he's pleased with. This is what angers him. This is what matters to him. This is how he likes to treat people. And, and, and seeing Jesus's life and listening to Jesus's voice, they were hearing the voice of God. They were seeing God dwelling among them, revealing to them what God was like. But by the same token, Jesus is a priest in the sense that he represents us before the throne of God. And, and he's our mediator to represent us to God on our behalf for our spiritual condition and our eternal need. And notice of Jesus as he proclaims him to be a priest simultaneously, which again was very unusual. As I said, an Old Testament priest and king couldn't mix. You were either a priest or a king. But with Jesus, you have a priest king or a king priest. At the same time, Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment, he was able to be both at the same time having a dual role and a dual ministry. And he says to him, you are a priest forever, so the idea there, again, is a declaration that Jesus would have an eternal priesthood. Again, very, very different because Old Testament priests from the tribe of Levi and of the descendancy of Aaron, the first high priest, they were never priests forever. They were priests temporarily because things would happen. Either, for example, they could make a mistake. And if they sinned and they violated their role in ministry and they brought moral defilement to their character or their credibility, they weren't priests anymore. Uh, and, and many times they didn't have to wait for people to force them to resign. God just killed them. God would just take them home to heaven early. God would just, in a sense, you know, expedite the process before you do more harm to my people. You have belief in me. But your behavior is not good for you to continue to represent me. So God would just quickly take care of them. There are times when they would go into the presence of the Lord. Remember in the, in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, and they'd go back into the Holy of Holies, and they would put the bells around their ankles as they go back into the presence of the Lord. And it says they would tie a rope around their ankle. And part of the reason for that is they heard the jingling stop. They knew, uh-oh, he must have done something wrong. Or he must have displeased God, or maybe he's been living a double life. And so when he went into the presence of God to make atonement or to do ministry in the presence of the Lord, God would just put an end to his life. And they'd have to pull him back out and say, uh, who's next in line? Who's the next descendant? And so sometimes they would die. Other times it was just by natural death. When natural death happened, there was a rotation. There were new priests. There was a new high priest. So to some degree, that priesthood was never perfect or 100% complete. Because imagine, here's the priests in their ministry, right? Here's the high priest, the, the kind of the, the highest spiritual position in the land. And you depended upon them to teach you the word of God, to pray for you, to intercede for you, to help represent God to you and provide spiritual leadership. And you become dependent upon them and their ministry, which was a wonderful thing. But then when they passed away, they couldn't help you anymore spiritually. So you'd get dependent on oh, this I love this priest. He teaches me God's word and he's explaining the Old Testament law to me and he's praying for me and he's encouraging me and he's providing spiritual leadership through his example. And then all of a sudden, the end of his life comes. The expiration of his days that were written in the book, they come to an end. And now there's no more help from that person's spirit. And God would raise up a new priest. The wonderful thing with Jesus as the captain of our salvation, as our great high priest, is notice it says there that his priesthood is what? Forever. So the help of Jesus never ceases. 
He's a constant spiritual leader that's he never messes up and is dethroned because of a human mistake. His life never comes to an end. The power of his endless life is what makes him this unique priesthood. According to the Old Testament, again, this was never possible. But notice, Jesus was a priest forever, God says, according to the order of Melchizedek, indicating from a different order. Remember, Jesus, if you look at him just in his natural humanity when he came to the earth, he was from the tribe of Judah. So from the tribe of Judah, Jesus would have had no natural claim to the priesthood of the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant because you had to be from the tribe of what? Levi. And to be the high priest, the great high priest, you had to be a descendant, not only from the tribe of Levi, but a descendant of Aaron himself in the family line of Aaron. Well, Jesus was a part of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't even from the tribe of Levi. So for him to claim priesthood or function in that way wouldn't work. And this is why God says there's a whole nother order of priesthood that my son is exclusively going to be set apart to. And he will therefore not have a temporary priesthood like the priesthood of Levi and Aaron's sons, but he will have a priesthood forever according to the order of Melchizedek, a completely different order. Now, this personage Melchizedek is quite an enigma in the Bible. And many try and take stabs at who he is and what he was. And was he a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Or was he just a person who represented Christ in type? The first time you see Melchizedek, he shows up back in Genesis chapter 14. One time he just appears. Genesis 14, as Abraham's returning from a battle, it tells us this. Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says that Abraham gave to this personage, Melchizedek, a tithe or a tenth of all his spoils from war. So this Melchizedek shows up on the scene. We're told, and notice, let me just re reference it again, Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek was king of Salem, and he was also priest of God Most High. Now, this is prior to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law hasn't even been established yet, but prior to Mosaic Law, this unique, mysterious person is, just shows up one time in the Bible, and then he disappears off the scene. We never hear about him again until all the way here in Psalm 110. No other references to Melchizedek. He just shows up with Abraham, the father of faith and righteousness by faith. After this battle, it says that he's a king and also priest of God most high. At the same time, he has both roles. He pronounces a blessing upon Abraham. Abraham recognizes very something and superior about him and gives him as a, a devotional act of love, a tenth of all of his spoils from war. Now, it's this order of Melchizedek of being both king and priest that's then built upon when we get into the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 and a portion of chapter 8 kind of continues on with the idea somewhat shows how Jesus is a high priest, a great high priest that lasts forever and ever and ever according to the Father's declaration here. And the reason is, is because he's a priest of a different order, not of the tribe of Levi, but of the order of Melchizedek, this king-priest personage that shows up back in Genesis chapter 14. Hebrews 6 verse 20 says, Jesus having become a high priest forever 
according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 goes on to say this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, was priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So interesting, Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of peace. Boy, doesn't that start to sound familiar, what he represented. And then it says this of Melchizedek. The New Testament tells us this just randomly filling in commentary about Melchizedek from Genesis 14. Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy. That was unusual because the Old Testament was all about tracing genealogical lineage to make sure somebody was of the right tribe and right line. Without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made, notice, like, and the Bible does say like, like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. So this Melchizedek, it says, had neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so therefore he was a priest perpetually. He had a continuous priesthood. Hebrews 7 declares this, therefore if perfection or completion were through the Levitical priesthood, for under that people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron? So the Bible saying, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, if that's all that people needed, then God would have never established another order of priesthood, which Jesus himself is the only one who comes from that order. He says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which the man has officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which the tribe of Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood, and it is yet far more evident that in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, speaking of Jesus, who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according, listen, to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, Hebrews 7 quotes from our passage here, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He then says, making application to our Lord Jesus, by so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant, something much better in spiritual relationship. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Therefore, he, referencing Jesus, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, elevating the priestly ministry of Jesus telling us it's much better for us spiritually because Jesus has the power of an endless life and therefore he's able to save to the uttermost because he continues to make intercession forever for us and his life never ceases. It's an eternal, endless life. When he says save to the uttermost, the idea is all the way out to the vanishing point. Sometimes we think save to the uttermost and the idea comes to mind like, yeah, Jesus can save to the guttermost, man. Like to the guttermost, he can save people to the uttermost, no matter how bad they are. The literal Greek indicates all the way out to the vanishing. The, the idea being is that Jesus saved you the moment you came to him and put faith and trust in him and you were born again of his spirit. And the Bible says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. The picture there is because Jesus lives forever and ever and ever and ever and ever as the great high priest, always making intercession, 
to the uttermost, he can carry out our salvation process. He saved you at the moment of your conversion, and he continues to provide your salvation all the way out to the vanishing point, despite all the dumb things we do and stains we get back on our spiritual garment again, if you were, through our sins and our mistakes. Jesus is there continuing to make intercession. Father, my blood, Father, my blood. Father, my blood, my blood is sufficient to wash that, to cleanse that. And he saves us all about that. That's really, really wonderfully encouraging to know that you don't have to keep yourself or to think, oh, man, I'm going to be the one person that's going to get to heaven and make a mess and I'll be the first one kicked out. No, because Jesus has the power of an endless life and he can save us all the way out to the vanishing point by his wonderful, wonderful priesthood. He then in verse five to seven speaks of this other role of Jesus as a conquering warrior and judge. He kind of pictures now the second coming of Christ as he returns back to this earth. Right now, he's functioning in heaven as a great high priest, having died, resurrected, and ascended, and he's there at the right hand of the Father making intercession. But ultimately, he says, verse 5 of our Lord Jesus, I believe it is returned, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings, the idea is rulers, earthly rulers, on the day of his wrath. Now we're looking at Revelation 19 when Jesus returns and comes back in his second coming. And when he comes in his second coming, he's not coming back as a humble suffering servant. He's coming back as a glorified warrior king to take control of everything he rightfully conquered through his life. And he, verse 6, shall judge among the nations. He shall fill places with dead bodies. Again, he's bringing severe judgment against all those who've rebelled against him, his enemies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. There, the idea of the heads of many countries speak of those in authority, dethroning all those who have human authority and dethroning them powerfully and quickly. When you read Revelation 19, it's very, very evident, whether it's overthrowing the Antichrist whether it's overthrowing kings that rally together to come and battle against Jesus, ultimately he is going to bring severe, swift judgment. And perhaps that's what verse 7 even alludes to this peculiar statement. He shall drink the brook by the wayside, and therefore he shall lift up the head. Now, to drink the brook by the wayside and then lift up the head could be an allusion to how a mighty general who is passing quickly through a land with great swiftness and power punishing his enemies, punishing wicked rebels who've hurt the people that they've dominated, that he might pause to briefly drink from the brook, but is not going to stay there long, that he's going to swiftly lift back up his head to the horizon and keep pressing forward and keep conquering and bringing judgment against enemy rebels. And perhaps it's a reference to, to Jesus, again, this idea of that when he comes and he begins to judge, it will not only be with severity, but it will be with swiftness. And he will carry it out to completion very, very quickly. Or it could perhaps, I don't know, verse 7 be a inference, this idea that he shall lift up the head. Is that a reference to lifting his own head back up? Or maybe it's an indication in some way of the king, Jesus, our conquering king when he returns, lifting up the head of his people who have at the same time been suffering because of the effects of evil and wickedness and perhaps his people being downcast because of all the evil rulership 
and all the influence of evil all over the earth. And that when Jesus comes and sets everything right and begins to judge those who rightly deserve to be judged, that he will begin to lift the heads of his people. It's okay now. I've dealt with that for you. There will be wickedness no more. I will now rule with righteousness and a rod of iron, and you'll never have to be affected by wicked, evil domination of people ever again. And so perhaps it's that indication of lifting up our heads with that encouragement. Psalm 111 is a psalm that, in a sense, exalts the greatness of the Lord. It says, praise the Lord, and that's the idea there. Of, there's our word hallelujah once again, translated in the English, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord, he says, with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So notice how we are to praise the Lord. First of all, he says it's an act of volition. Again, notice I will. It's a choice. I will choose to praise the Lord, whether it looks like I have a reason to, whether it feels like I want to, I will. I'll make a choice to praise the Lord with, notice, my whole heart. The idea is that when we give praise to the Lord, it shouldn't be half-hearted, that we worship the Lord our God in the same way we're called to love the Lord our God, Jesus said, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. So again, even as we do other things wholeheartedly and not half-heartedly, when we praise the Lord, we want to praise him with a whole heart. So I believe that when we have opportunity to praise the Lord, and obviously one of the ways we get to do that, not only personally or praising the Lord with our words, but when we come together corporately, as he references here, in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, that we should be passionate and enthusiastic when we worship the Lord, that we shouldn't be worshiping the Lord just, uh, just kind of you know, just, just half heart, but, but with passion and with a whole heart, wholeheartedly. Lord, I don't want to half-heartedly praise you. I want to praise you with a whole heart. Again, when we think about his greatness, we certainly should be compelled to do that. And he says we do it in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation among the Lord's people. Something very powerful to participate in corporate praise and worship. Verse 2, he then says, the works of the Lord are great. And that is indeed true. His works are great, the many works of the Lord. And notice he says, studied, that's an interesting thing, studied by all who have pleasure in them. So those who have pleasure in the work of the Lord, those who take pleasure in God, they have also an interest in understanding the works of the Lord to a greater degree. So they study such things that our lifelong research project is the work of the Lord, wanting to know God, to understand his ways, to understand his works to a greater degree that we study those things, exactly what you're doing tonight. I seem to get the indication that you must be one of those who take pleasure in the works of the Lord because you're here tonight studying the works of the Lord. So whether we're doing that personally in our own, you know, kind of scientific research, if you would, of studying our Bibles and getting into the word of God and wanting to understand more his works and his ways and to know the great things that he does in our lives, or whether we come together corporately, we're called, like, like spiritual scientists, to study the works of the Lord, to understand how he works and the awesomeness of his ways and the things that he does. He says, verse 3, his work, the work of the Lord, is honorable. That is, it's worthy of honor, and it's glorious. It's something that should be astonishing to us that we would want to give glory to him. And his righteousness, that is 
the rightness of his character and what he does. He says it endures forever. That is, it, it never changes. It's not swayed by what happens in society. His righteousness and his ways of acting in right ways as he performs his work, it, it just, it's enduring. It's unchanging. This is what we talk about, the immutability of God. The fact that God never changes. Nothing can make him change and he will never change. And there's something very, very, to me, wonderful about that in a constantly changing world where things are always variable and you know, but, but with the Lord, his righteousness, it endures. He's always going to do what's right. He's always going to rule and operate in a righteous way. And you can rely upon that. There's great dependency because he never, ever changes. He always does what's right. And we can rest in that verse four. He then says, and he has made his wonderful works to be remembered, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Notice, he's made his wonderful works to be remembered, to be recalled, things that we would reflect upon. You know, I read that there and I think perhaps of you know, inferences to the feasts in the Old Testament. Many of the feasts in the Old Testament were ways for the people of God to come together and to remember the works of the Lord, Passover and tabernacles. These were times where they would celebrate in worship and they would purposely call to remembrance the works of the Lord, his deliverance out of Egypt or how he preserved them in the wilderness and took care of them despite their mistakes that he kept faithfully preserving them and how his wonderful works, the Bible says they're to be remembered. We should give remembrance to them. You know, Jesus told us something that we're to do as New Testament Christians in regards to remembering the works of the Lord. We call that communion or the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, he says, I want you to do this in what? Remembrance of me. And so we should do this. We should participate in this because we should be remembering the works of the Lord. Because as we do that, we remember as well that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And certainly when we remember the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, it's a constant fresh reminder of how gracious our Lord is to us, how full of compassion he is, despite our failures and our weaknesses, that he's compassionate with us. He says, verse five, he's given food to those who fear him. So that speaks of God as provider, those who reverence him. He makes sure to provide their necessary food. We read in an earlier psalm that he who seeks the Lord lacks no good thing, that God is our provider. He supplies our food, and he will ever be mindful of, notice, his covenant. God's a covenant-keeping God, and he means God makes promises and commitments, and he's ever mindful of his covenants. We may not remain faithful, but God, the Bible says, cannot lie, and God, even in our faith listeners, he always remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so that covenant that God has made all throughout his word, many different times he makes covenants with his people. You and I are under the new covenant. He's always mindful. He remembers his covenant and he has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nation. So notice he wants his people to see the power of his works Verse seven, the works of his hands are verity. The idea is they're truthful, they're true. And they're also justice, which means they're fair, 
They're always equitable. God is always true and fair. And all his precepts are sure, that is, dependent, reliable. Psalm 119 is going to emphasize that to a great extent. The precepts of the Lord, the word of God, is sure. It's reliable. It's 100% dependable. You can always be sure when you're coming to this book. You can't always be sure when you do Google. You can't always be sure when you go to the CDC. You can't always be sure when you research this, but you can always know that you have what's sure when you go to the Word of God. His precepts are always sure. It's the one source of truth that we can always go to to get everything that we need as we study and research the works of the Lord and know, hey, this is sure. I don't know if what you're saying on this news channel is sure. I don't know if what they told me is sure, but at least I know this is sure. And and, and I can build my life upon that dependency. He says, verse 8, they stand fast forever and are done in truth and righteousness. Notice, unalterable. They stand fast forever and ever. God's word is eternal. Verse 9 tells us that he has sent redemption to his people and commanded his covenant, his promise or contract forever, and holy and awesome is his name. Now, certainly God sent redemption to his people Israel when they were in Egypt. He sent redemption to purchase them through the blood of that sacrificial lamb to redeem or buy back his people to himself and set them free from enslavement and give them liberty. But how much more true is it of you and I at this point on the other side of the cross and the resurrection to know in verse 9 that Christ is our Passover, 1 Corinthians tells us, and that God has sent redemption to you and I through Jesus, that the shed blood of Jesus paid the redemption price to free us spiritually from slavery and bondage and to give us freedom from sin and its power over our lives. He sent Jesus to bring redemption to you and I. And verse 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and good understanding have all those who do his commandments, not just who hear them, but do his commandments and his praise endures forever. Notice that phrase, verse 10, the fear of the Lord speaks of what? Reverence for God, respect towards the Lord. He says here, The fear of the Lord or respect for the Lord, respect for God in the way that you conduct yourself in your heart and and in your outlook and the way that you live. If you have respect for God, that becomes the beginning, the origin of wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. Knowledge is knowing facts. Wisdom is living well. So he says, those who respect God That's the beginning of knowing how to live well. You may be completely uneducated. You may not be as educated as other around. You may even be upset that you don't have access to the education other people have. But if you have respect for God and a reverence for God in your life, that there is the beginning of a life well lived, of living well, living wisely. He says the fear of the Lord, that's that's where wisdom comes from and much better to have wisdom than to have knowledge. Wisdom is simply the application of knowledge. So he says, the fear of the Lord, that brings wisdom. And that's what he means, I think, in verse 10, when he's going to say, good understanding will have all those who do his commandments. As you obey the word of God out of respect for the Lord, God's going to enlighten your understanding. And you're going to understand more than people who have PhDs all around you. 
because you're going to understand how to do life and what really matters and how to live well and experience a blessed life rather than a life of regret and misery and problems. Let's look briefly at Psalm 112. It's a companion to this psalm. We'll move through it quickly as well as we conclude. Psalm 112 is basically the other side. Psalm 111 is extolling the greatness of God. Psalm 112 basically shows us the benefits of living godly. So it's almost like at the end of Psalm 111, as he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of a life well lived wisely, and you'll have good understanding if you obey his commandments. He then almost says, okay, let me show you what that looks like. Here are the benefits of just living a godly life, a life of walking with God. He says, verse one, blessed is the man, there it is, who fears the Lord. Just what the last verse said. That person is going to have a blessed life. There's going to be a life of benefit that comes to them because they fear the Lord, who also delights greatly in his commandments. So if you respect the Lord, if you delight, which means to enjoy, if you enjoy the commands of God, that is, if you're someone who respects God and therefore, because you respect God, you enjoy and you delight in his word to be a lamp for your feet and a light for your path, he says, that's the pathway towards blessing. You're going to begin to have a blessed life. Verse two, he then starts to talk about the benefits of the person who walks with God. What are the benefits of living for God, walking with God, loving his word? His descendants, that is his children, his children's children, his descendants will be mighty on the earth. It will bring empowerment to your family life. It will cause your descendants to have great influence for good. They'll be mighty on the earth. And the generation of the upright will be blessed. There'll be a blessing upon your generations following you because you live for God. And I think a lot of times it takes a little while for us to see that. But I, but I tell you, that, a lot of times I tell younger parents now because I've been blessed to get to the stage now where I have you know, three adult children. And a lot of times just to encourage younger parents, I'll just say to them, listen, don't get caught up in trying to look for all the fruit in the early stages. But I'm telling you, it, it takes a little while. Don't grow weary in well-doing. In due season, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. Keep ministering to your kids, ministering to your kids, raising them in the ways of the Lord. And something really, really wonderful happens when eventually you start to see this, the fruit sprouting and you see the blessing coming upon the next generation of your own family and those of your household beginning to rise up and walk with the Lord and serve the Lord. And he says, that's just a sort of a trickle effect of the blessing. You live for God, you love God's word, you do things God's way. And he says, and just watch how that from generation to generation, it just spreads the kind of pass down as you live for God and the influence of your life will begin to affect your generations afterward being blessed by living for God as well. He speaks as well of, of benefit and prosperity coming at times from serving the Lord. He says, verse three, and this was a common attachment to the old covenant, but I think the principle still applies. He says, wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Well, you wait a minute. I've been living for God. Where's the wealth and the riches? Well, well let me say this. One of the benefits of living God's way and living wisely and not being enslaved to drugs and alcohol and stupid vices and, and, and squandering money in foolish ways, guess what it does? It puts a little more wealth and riches in your bank because you don't spend money 
like a fool because you live wisely. And let me just say this too. Wealth isn't always measured by money and monetary and material things. There is wealth of things that are far more wonderful, peace and a good marriage and good relationships with our children and and the, the benefits of a stable home life. These things are wealth and riches in a household that are far surpassing how much zeros there are in our bank account. But he says, the blessing, the prosperity of God can come in a beautiful way to enrich, to, put that, to enrich the life of a person who lives for God. Verse four, unto the upright, there arises light in the darkness. So again, we may live in a dark world, but God will give us light as we live in an upright way and, and we keep walking upright with him. He'll give to us light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And that's very helpful because we live in a world that's getting darker and darker and darker. But as we live for God, we will have light that the unsaved people around us don't have. And so they're wandering around the darkness and crashing into this and making messes and ruining aspects of their life. But as the people of God, we have light because we have the word of God and the son of God and the spirit helping us to have light in the midst of the dark days to see things more clearly. And notice as well. He, now this is a reference to the, to the man or the woman of God, not God himself. He becomes gracious, full of compassion and righteousness. Now, isn't that interesting? Do you remember our prior Psalm? Psalm 111 verse four, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. But when you walk with God, what happens? You become like God as God's spirit works in you and he begins to make you more like himself the godly man, the godly woman who walks with God and obeys his word and respects God begins to be someone who also is gracious. You become a more gracious person. Who would not like to be a little more gracious? <laughs> a little bit more full of compassion. Having compassion for people. Tenderness instead of you know just lack of sensitivity, being just uncaring and cold-hearted or apathetic or being harsh. You know, who this week has not found them one side? Man, I kind of was a little bit harsh there. Wish I was a little bit more compassionate in that situation. But notice as we walk with God, we become more gracious, more full of compassion as the fruit of the spirit is produced in us. He says, verse five, and a good man also deals graciously. So he's gracious in dealing with other people. And he says, lends. That is, you become a more giving person. You're willing to extend help whether it's financial or whatever, you, you're willing to be gracious in dealing with people and to lend. And how is he able to do that? Verse five, because the godly man, notice, doesn't live like a fool without self-restraint and wisdom and listening to the Holy Spirit and being directed by God's truths and his word. A godly man, a godly woman will guide his affairs with discretion. That is, you use discretion in your decisions. You pray about your decisions you think about your decisions. You make sure you seek counsel and make good decisions. You, you don't just make random choices. You, you, you realize, hey, I need to use discretion. I'm a steward of God. I don't want to make dumb choices more than I already do. So I want to guide my affairs in my life using discretion, discernment, he says. That's a benefit of living and serving God. He says, verse 6, surely he will never be shaken. So it brings stability to our lives. Serving God 
Walking with God helps us not to be shaken when others around us are living unstable lives. They're all over the map. They're up, they're down, they're right, they're left. There's just constant instability. But he says the person who walks with God will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. Look at verse 7. This is great. He will not be afraid, terrified, paranoid of evil tidings. You could write in your Bible there if it's, you don't have a, maybe a more modern translation. The idea is you won't be someone who has the constant fear and paranoia of bad news. Boy, is that not relevant? That the person who walks with God and lives for God and knows God doesn't live in chronic anxiety over bad news. Oh, my goodness. Now this happened. What's going on with the war? What, what's the price of gas now? $4.30, what's going to happen next? Are we going to be able to have dinner tomorrow night? And, and, and right, there's constant bombardment, is there not, of bad news, bad news, bad news. I mean, we, we saw what happened of something that was a legitimate health issue that took place over the last two years, but then the gasoline that was thrown upon that to raise paranoia in the whole world's minds and we see what happens if you get everyone in the world terrified of bad news and panic and the effect that has upon societies and families and humanity i mean the 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 things that we have not only reaped in sadly the the painful consequence of the legitimate effects of a virus that did sicken many and take the lives of individuals as well But beyond that, what the media doesn't address is the harmful impact of the depression and the suicides and the drug overdoses and the domestic violence and the mental instability and all of the detrimental effects of people who did not know what to do with the fear of bad news and evil tidings. And he says, one of the wonderful things of knowing God and walking with God is we live through all the fear and all the evil and bad tidings and all the bad news, but we can say, but I'm going to trust God. God's still on his throne. God's going to take care of me. And and though the world seems out of control, God's, God's going to help me through this. And so we don't become overwhelmed by the fear and the anxiety where it cripples and destroys our lives. We don't have to live in that paranoia Because we know God, he says, it brings peace into our life, a stability mentally in the way that we live their stability. And we don't have that chronic crushing anxiety where we're afraid of evil tidings because look, verse seven, his heart is steadfast. Why? Trusting in the Lord. Because we're trusting in the Lord, our heart can have a degree of stability to it. He says his heart is established. He will not be afraid. Again, we we don't have to be overwhelmed. There may be things to be afraid of, but we don't have to live in fear and be dominated by fear and cope with it in unhealthy ways until he sees his desire upon his enemies. The man of God, verse 9, is dispersed abroad. Again, he's sharing. He's giving to the poor. He's helping those who are in in a difficult place. He extends his hand to the poor, to the less fortunate. His righteousness endures forever. And boy, that's true. 
through Christ, we have an eternal righteousness from what he's given to us. His horn speaks of our exaltation. He says his horn will be exalted with honor. So again, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the Bible says, and he will lift you up. And so exaltation can come from the Lord as we walk with him. He exalts us in due time. In verse 10, he then concludes, turning now, he says, the wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth. Boy, that sounds familiar of what Jesus talked about regarding the lake of fire. He will gnash his teeth and melt away the desire of the wicked shall perish. So notice the contrast. The righteous man, the godly man, the godly woman walks with God, fears God, respects God, knows God's word, all these beautiful benefits. And then he says, sadly, those who rebel against God and don't know God and don't live with God, they're grieved, they're miserable, and all their desires come crashing down. Complete opposite. Oh, the benefit of living with God. Don't let your mind confuse you. If you know God and you're living for God, folks, you are a very blessed person. Very, very blessed. Amen? Let's stand together.